Hey everyone, thank you for tuning in to The Wayfinder Show. This episode contains a very powerful and entertaining interview with our good friend Mark Owens. However, I wanted to warn you that there is more coarse language in this episode than our typical interviews, so just be aware that there are quite a few F-bombs that get thrown around, so if that is an issue for you, please listen at a different time or check out one of our other episodes. Thank you for your understanding. Welcome to The Wayfinder Show with Adam Lacey and Luis Hernandez, where guests discuss the why and how of making changes in their life that led them down a greater, more authentic path or allowed them to level up in some area of their life. Our goal is to dig deep and provide not only knowledge, but actionable advice to help you get from where you are to where you want to be. Come join us and find the way to your dream life. All right. Welcome to the Wayfinder Show. We're here with Mark Owens. Mark Owens is a successful real estate investor in the Baltimore, Maryland region. Uh, he's also a real estate coach and uh, semi-retired now. So he's doing some different interesting things with his life uh, that we're going to hear all about. So let's jump right into it. Uh, Mark, thanks for joining us. No, thank you very much, Adam and Louie. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah we thank you. you joining us. Yeah, Mark. So tell us a little bit about your story. Where uh, you grew up in Baltimore? Uh, yeah, I grew up in Baltimore City. Okay. Uh, born in it's it's embarrassing to say this, 1965, because it sounds like it was like a different century. Well, actually, it was, um, but it just sounds like it was so long ago, you know. And uh, most of my friends were younger than I am, so it's like just sounds weird saying that. But uh, I was born in 65. Uh, lived in Baltimore City up until. It was around maybe 12, 13, then moved out to Baltimore County for four years or something like that. So I get kicked out of high school, then I moved back to the city. And uh, and that's, you know, that's where I was at for most of my adult life up till around the age of 25, something like that. There were a couple of other periods where I was living in other areas, but that's where I was at for the most part. How was it growing up in Baltimore in that era? That was uh, interesting. It was, times, it was right? a little different. You know, we had uh our own social challenges like we have today uh just you know maybe for the same reasons but they were expressed in different ways back then uh just from my own experience things have gotten so much better than they were in the 70s and and 80s as far as just like just mm, it's just better i would just say that like people are more open to being friends today that they might not have been open to being friends with back then uh, just for, you know, whatever reasons, cultural, historical, whatever. Uh, so I think things were much better today, but it was tough back then. For me personally, growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, it was kind of like a lower middle class blue collar area where most of us, most of my friends that I hung out with, like their dream job was to like get a job driving a forklift at a factory. Like that's as far as they could think is like, you know, that's the life, man. You get a job driving a factory, you rent a house on Falls Road and you're good. People that really didn't talk about buying houses or opening businesses or anything like that. It was just like, you know, blue collar stuff, like unskilled blue collar community for the most part, at least with my clique. You know, there were other people in the neighborhood that were, I'm sure, you know, like plumbers and accountants and stuff, but I didn't know any of those people. 
So for me, there was never really any expectation of any of my friends or click or anything. Like we never talked about going to college or anything like that. We were just thinking like, you know, you know, like to quit school, <laughs> get out of school because it just seemed like such a waste. I could be out making money working in a factory. Instead, I'm taking, you know, learning about U.S. history again. You know, it's just so it just didn't seem like it really made a lot of sense to us. That changed probably when I was like, well, let me back up. I started smoking weed when I was like 12 years old. And in my neighborhood, that was pretty common. You know, I was smoking cigarettes and weed when I was 12. Uh, started getting in trouble. You know, parents found out, and, all, and you know, they weren't real happy about it. And so we moved out of Baltimore City into Baltimore County, really just about 10 miles away. But it's different, like culturally, it was different. And it was different as far as like legal jurisdictions, like they had their own leadership, own school, own police, like everything. And uh, so when I moved out to Perry Hall, Maryland, it was really different for me. It was kind of a culture shock because a lot of the kids there were thinking about yeah, well, I'm going to go to Hopkins or I'm going to get a University of Maryland. Like they're talking about college. And I was just like, I couldn't really relate to that. I was kind of smart. And I was, you know, if I'd have been raised in a different environment, I might have been talking about the same things when I was 10 years old. But at that point, I really wasn't. Uh, so it was kind of interesting for me to meet people that weren't thinking about becoming forklift drivers. They were thinking about being the architect that actually designs the warehouse where the forklift driver works. And so that kind of, it was kind of good and bad for me. It was kind of good in a sense that I saw that, okay, you don't have to just stop at the second rung of the ladder. Like there's people that are shooting for the top of the ladder. On the other hand, I felt less than or incomplete because up until that point, that's all I thought I was good enough for was to work in a factory or something like that. And so then I felt kind of like I didn't fit in with these kids that had higher aspirations because me and my previous clique never did. So that was kind of weird. And I didn't, I just didn't feel like I fit in because I was like a city kid. And I was a little bit more hardcore than the county kids who, in my opinion, were like soft and uh, childish. Like they didn't grow up as fast. And so, you know, because there wasn't like the violence and the crime, the dogs barking and the sirens and all that stuff, you know, they're growing up and there's like cows in the backyard and stuff like that. So it's really culture shock for me. But the drug stuff didn't stop. You know, my drug use escalated and, uh, you know, I went from, you know, like smoking weed and, and then it started drinking. And then it was like, let me do speed. And then it's like, well, let me do Valiums and Quaaludes and let's, let me eat some acid. Let me do some mushrooms and inhalants with toluene in it. And then uh, and it was really bad. Like, you know, I'm, I, I felt the 10th grade and uh, it's funny because in the fourth grade, they wanted me to skip a grade because I was doing so well in school. And then I failed the 10th grade. So there was a lot that happened like during the high school years, as far as like getting arrested for like dumb, what I would consider by my later standards, like dumb shit. By the time I was 17 in my, I failed the 10th grade. I went to summer school that summer. I went to summer school the next summer. I was going to night school in my senior year to catch up for that grade that, uh, that I failed. And I was really defiant and angry really despised authority, questioned everything, just had a chip on my shoulder. And part of that was, you know, I didn't go back to this, but like growing up, like I didn't know who my father was. Like, I mean, he was married to my mother, but they got divorced when I was like three months old and I never met him. So I was like really angry about that. And I didn't realize that until really the last five or 10 years, uh, how that affected me. So anyway, back to, uh, 
high school, the I was cutting a lot of classes. That's why I failed the 10th grade. I think I missed my English class like 80 times. In my senior year in November, I got called to the principal's office again. And he told me that if I cut another class, he's going to suspend me to the Board of Education with a recommendation for expulsion. And then he gave me my pass back to class. And I walked out of his office and walked out right out the front door of the school. And, and my opinion was like, man, fuck you. It's like, here, take this. Wow. And uh, that was just my, you know, I'm 17. You know, it's like I wasn't mature. I was like had a chip on my shoulder. Like I felt like at that time in my life, like a fucking loser. Like I didn't fit in anywhere. Uh, I had no direction. I had, in my opinion, like no direction at home. I mean, my parents were good at yelling at me and shit like that. But as far as like sitting down and, and having a heart to heart, like there wasn't anything there. And so what I ended up doing was moving back down to my grandmother's house, uh, which was one street over from where I grew up in Baltimore. And that was November. I was 17. And then in February of the following year, 83, uh, I saw one of my friend's brothers shooting cocaine. And I thought, man, I'm going to try that. And I did. I had tried it right there. I was 17 years old, shooting coke. You know, and then I found out other guys in the neighborhood were shooting heroin. So, you know, within a few weeks, I was shooting heroin. And uh, and once you get into that lifestyle, like that just opens up a whole new set of doors that lead to like really terrible stuff like crime, health issues, going to jail. It just like nothing good comes from that. But at the time, like all junkies think well, it'll never happen to me. I'll quit before it gets that bad. I thought the same thing. Like I would never, it's like how many fat people you see people that are really fat when they were young, they said, I would never let myself get that fat, but here they are, you know? And, and I think it's a very common thing, whether it's with drugs or other health issues. Uh, nobody says I want to grow up and weigh 400 pounds. Like nobody does that, but it, you know, for a lot of us, it happens and it's slowly over time. You don't realize it till it's too late and you can't get out of bed and every joint in your body hurts. And it's the same stuff stuff with the drug stuff. You don't you don't shoot heroin and then the next day you're out like robbing stores. You know, it's like you shoot heroin and then it's like, well, you know what? I'll pay my rent, you know, I'll figure out a way to get it Monday. And it's just, and then you spend your rent, you know, part of your rent money on drugs. And then you're like, well, let me sell my TV. And and then it's just like it, it just slowly escalates. And then, you know, eventually you're gonna hit some type of bottom. So anyway, I was 17 years old, started shooting coke and dope. Uh held down some mediocre jobs, like just dumb shit. I didn't realize at the time in like 1983, we were in a recession. I didn't know what a recession was uh, and couldn't find any decent jobs. So I'm, you know, doing dumb shit, like working in gas stations and stuff like that for minimum wage, which I think was like 285 or 315 an hour, but cigarettes were only like 60 cents a pack. So, you know, it wasn't that big of a, of a difference in according to today's dollars, because the minimum wages went up and so the prices of everything else. So, that all started to, you know, with the drug stuff, I started to, you know, my life started to get even more out of control. And there were times where, you know, I finally wound up in a drug rehab in Towson, Maryland. I can't remember what year it was, maybe 85, something like that. And I went from there to a halfway house in York, Pennsylvania. And that was like a three month program. I ended up getting kicked out after like three weeks. It's a long story why, but I got kicked out of that. You know, wound back up in Baltimore and within, you know, like a couple of days I was getting high again and fucking up. 
And uh, that lifestyle took me to, you know, let me see, I was homeless in California, like literally like sleeping in abandoned houses in California. Uh, I got kicked out of a drug rehab in California. Well, actually, I didn't get kicked out of that one. I walked out of that one. And I lived in the streets for a while. Let me see. I got kicked out of another drug rehab in Virginia and violated my probation. So I actually hitchhiked to Florida and lived in the streets in Jacksonville, Florida for a few weeks and then ended up going to jail down there for 60 days. And eventually wound up in Pennsylvania where I ended up. So it's a long story. I can go through it, but you know, I met a girl up there and try to get my shit together and I got a job and ended up fucking up again and, you know, did a, wasn't really a robbery, but it kind of was, I got charged with robbery, but then I, after 60 days, I got out on bail. And uh, after that point, things really got out of control where, how do I put this? We needed some rent money. And I had in the past had robbed like drug dealers and a couple of stores, like nothing for me at the time, it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, for people that have never done it, it might sound like it, but for me, it was like, you know, I've done that before. So it wasn't really a big stretch to, for me to like, just think about, yeah, I think I'm gonna get robbed a bank. And uh, so that's what I did. I didn't tell my girlfriend about it. You know, she went to work and I went and stole a car and then went and robbed the bank. And Got home, paid the rent, hid the money up in the kitchen, in the in a closet in the kitchen. And then what happened, it was just the weirdest damn thing. But the very next morning, uh, my girlfriend still didn't know any of this. And the very next morning, a sheriff shows up. And a sheriff shows up at our house the next morning, at our apartment, with a bail bondsman. And they were going to revoke my bail. I was out on bail for that one robbery thing in Pennsylvania. And uh, apparently her... Somebody in her family or one of her friends called the sheriff's department and said I was going to like flee the state. So they were coming back to get me before I did. And I was, you know, kind of, uh, I mean, I remember like looking at my girlfriend and I was like very like compliant with the sheriff and all, you know, I'm like, Hey, let me get dressed. And that's cool. And, uh, and I remember like, I was tight, like I'm dressed to run, man. I'm putting on loose clothing. I'm tying my t- tennis shoes real tight. I winked at my girlfriend. And uh, because I was just a cocky fuck and I winked at her and she didn't like know why I knew why. And uh, I told her, I asked the sheriff, I said, listen, man, can I call my grandma? Because she's the one that got me bailed out. I just want to tell her what's going on. I don't want her worrying about me. And I was just being very compliant and agreeable. And then he said, sure, that's that's not a problem. So we go into the kitchen and he stands in front of one doorway that leads to the hallway that leads to the door out of the apartment. And the bail bonds guy was standing at the kitchen door that goes out to the fire escape. And I was just picked up the phone and I was pretending I was talking. I wasn't talking to anybody, but I was pretending I was talking to my grandmother. And the sheriff, he said, all right, man, it's time to go. And I said, all right, man, just give me one more minute. And I kept talking. He says, time to go. And I said, all right, just one more minute. And then he came around behind me and he grabbed my hand. So that gave me an opening to get to the hallway, to the door. And I just, I spun around and picked them up just a little bit and threw them up over the kitchen table and spun around got to the hallway got to the door down the steps down to the alley down to the woods to the schuylkill river went down the trails of the schuylkill river to i got to a bridge and i knew that the you know like they were gonna be looking for me you know like i don't know if it's gonna be helicopters or what but i I wanted to get to the other side of the river but i know i couldn't go on the top of the, the bridge because then like i'm wide open so i actually climbed up underneath the bridge and then went across the river 
on the bottom underneath the bridge on the girders or whatever they're called. Wow. Made it to the other side of the river. And now I need a ride, right? Like I gotta get the fuck out of Pennsylvania. And I, you know, I'm walking around. I actually try to jump on a train. That's another story. <laughs> Didn't do that. I stopped before I grabbed on because I was afraid I was gonna fall and like get my arms cut off or you know, something terrible. So I go up into this little town. And uh, I'm looking for a car to jack. And I see, a, you know, this guy pulls up in front of a pharmacy and left his car double parked with the motor running. It's like, there's my ride. <laughs> so I hopped in the guy's car and drove to Maryland. The very next morning, the feds raided my apartment. And I, was, I wasn't there. I'd already, like, escaped from the sheriff. And they raided my apartment, and they found the money and, you know, all this other stuff. And, uh, of course, my girlfriend was, like, you know, had no idea what the fuck was going on. And at that point, I thought, all right, well, you know, shit's over. So what am I going to do now? And my thoughts were, I'm just going to like, you know, I'm just going to get rob shit, drug dealers, stores, whatever, and get high until I either overdose or get shot. That's that's where I was at. And so that's what I did. So I spent like the next three, maybe three weeks stealing cars, robbing stores, buying drugs, going to hotels, getting high for two, three days, going to robbing another one or two stores, going to buy more drugs and all that stuff. That all changed on September 8th, 89, when a friend, a girlfriend and I were out and we were at a hotel, ran out of drugs, went, robbed another store, went and bought drugs, on the way back to the hotel, and I ran a red light in a stolen car because I wanted to get high. <laughs> it's like, fuck the laws, I want to get high. And uh, ended up getting barricaded in by a cop was coming up over the hill behind me when I ran the light and he was on his way to another call. You know, I just, I didn't know if he saw me or not. I get up to the next intersection and there were three lanes and it was like one or two in the morning. There's like all the lanes are blocked. Like there's people going somewhere in the middle of the fucking night. And within like 20, 30 seconds of sitting there at this red light, Two police pulled up in front of those cars and the cop that was behind me, you know, flew up on my back, but, you know, with their lights on and they all get out with their guns out and, you know, all that stuff. And uh, I wasn't done. You know, it's like, all right, well, I looked over at, you know, Barb and said, let me, you know, give me the drugs. And I got out with my hands up and then uh, I took off running. Gritting my fucking teeth because I thought this is Baltimore City. Like I might get shot. Like you know, I don't know. Cops, you know, they shoot anybody. And uh, I didn't know. I just knew that I'm not just gonna like just go walk or what you know walk up to him with my hands out. Like I'm fucking doing my best to get the fuck out of here. So it only took a couple minutes for them to catch me. I was in really you know bad health, <laughs> you know, and I couldn't run that far. And I smoked cigarettes, and you know it was a fucking mess. And I ended up getting caught. I went out to Baltimore. They sent me to Baltimore County Detention Center instead of Baltimore City because I had like, I think like 25 robberies in Baltimore County. I admitted to everything. They found a bank bag under the car. I had a warrant for my arrest for a bank robbery. I had a warrant for the stuff in Pennsylvania. I had a, actually had an old warrant in Maryland for a violation of probation from years earlier. So I knew I was going to be, you know, getting locked up for a while. So I just thought, man, just let me get all this shit off my plate and just tell them everything I did. So I admitted to everything. I mean, I, like I knew I was, I was gonna, I wasn't gonna get away with it anyway. So I might as well just get this shit off my plate. I don't want to be sitting in jail for twenty years, worrying that they're gonna find out about something else I did, and then I'm gonna get slapped with a detainer three weeks before I get out and have to go through this shit all over again. So I just thought, let's get it over with. But I still wasn't done. Uh, that was September eighth, eighty nine. In, in 
the beginning of October, I was in Baltimore County Detention Center. And at that time, with my state of mind, like, I wouldn't have hesitated to, like, beat one of those guards down and take their keys to get out. Like, I wouldn't, it's like, I was in that state of mind. And uh, I wasn't done. You know, my my options were get shot or overdose. It wasn't going to jail. So, so it's like, I got to get out of here. Uh, I'm not finished my mission. And so I attempted to escape out of Baltimore County Detention Center. I ended up breaking off a piece of one of the bunk beds and got a piece of steel that was like, I don't know, four feet long. And I got the screen off the window, got a hole in the grate, and I was trying to pluck the plexiglass out of the window when they rolled in and called me. Thank God. And so I was on a high bail section. Like everybody had $100,000 bailing up. It's like all of the robbers, rapists, murderers, like, and they were all going to go out behind me because they all knew what I was doing. And I, I wanted them to follow me out because I thought if there's 40 guys in the street, I got a better chance of getting away than if it's just me. So I wanted everybody to split and I uh, got caught, went to lockup. I was on lockup for six months. And then what happened was uh, about two or three weeks into it, my attorney comes to see me and we go into a little conference room with a little metal table and, and he looks at me and he, he says, man, what the fuck is wrong with you? He said, uh, you, you're already locked up. Can't you even stay out of trouble in jail? And then he said something that changed my life. He said, don't you realize that if you do what you're supposed to do, you can be home by the time you're 30 years old. You'll be young enough to start a whole new life. And of course, I felt like a total idiot, you know, having this guy sit there and, you know, point out you know, how stupid I am and these poor decisions that I've made, but he was right. Like I knew he was right. And so, you know, I went back to my cell, I, you know, we had, we talked more about our strategy for like how we were going to deal with these cases and all went back to my cell and over the next couple of days, I, I was started to think about what he said. I'll be young enough to start a whole new life if I do what I'm supposed to do. And that was probably at the time, the best thing I'd ever heard in my life, because up until then, I just thought like, I'm destined to like live this lifestyle that I've chose and die as a result of it, of my choice. And, uh, and for him to say, I could start a whole new life. Like that never had entered my mind over the past few months. Cause I tried drug rehabs. I tried different churches. I'd been locked up, you know, spent a year in prison a few years before that been to the rehabs, moved to different states, had decent girlfriends that were like normal, nothing worked. So I just thought like, this is it, I'm, I'm just done. When he said that, I realized, I was like, all right, I'm gonna fucking do this. I'm gonna do this time, I deserve it. I'm gonna get, I'm gonna get the most from it. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna do the time. The time's not gonna do me. I'm gonna like take advantage of everything that's available through this experience to put myself in the best position possible so that when I get out, I can live that decent life. And uh, so I sat on lockup for like another five months. And when I got off lockup in April of 90, it's the funniest damn thing, but I found a book on one of the pod tables. I didn't know they, like, I didn't know they had self-help books back then. And uh, it was called, You Can If You Think You Can. And it was, the author's name was Norman Vincent Peale. And I picked it up and I looked at it. And, you know, most of the books in jail are like Louis L'Amour westerns and Stephen King novels and you know just junk like that and uh and this was a self-help book and I read the back and I thought man I'm gonna read this I got nothing else to do I got plenty of time and halfway through that book 
my life changed like in an instant where this, the author of this book had convinced me that I can do whatever I want in my life. But the first thing I have to do is believe in myself, not some higher power, not any, you know, not my girlfriend. I, I have to believe in myself. And, and he told a bunch of stories of people that did that and how they had amazing lives just by changing their beliefs in themselves. And, uh, and he convinced me and halfway through the book, you could smoke in the jails back then. And I had like two cartons of Newports and I was just like, man, I'm fucking done. I quit smoking. And I had, had, a, had a half a pack that was still, you know, still had like half the cigarettes in it. I gave them to one of my jailhouse friends. I said, Frank, take these fucking cigarettes. I'm done. I quit. And, and the reason I was doing that was to prove to myself that I do have the power to fucking change and do whatever I want, but I have to believe in myself. And it was also to show like my family, like, man, I'm not, I'm like serious. Like, I'm not just saying this so I get out of trouble again and then I can do it again, just better. You know, it's like, I'm changing. I'm, I'm not the same fucking person. And I got a confidence that I'd never had in my life. And that confidence changed everything. And so for the next little over four years that I was locked up, you know, I got a two-year degree in business. I got a six-month construction certificate. I, you know, participated in every possible thing that I could participate in to put myself in a position. So when I got out, uh, I would be okay. Funny thing that happened, this is probably like the best part of the story is uh, when I was in high school, I dated a girl that I was, I was in love with her. You know, I was like, and I, she loved me. And we, like, we just collect, you know, we just connected. Like I felt like I could tell her anything. And it was like the first person in my life that I ever felt like that with, like, I could just be myself, but I didn't tell her everything. I didn't tell her like about my drug use and all that stuff. And I ended up breaking up with her because I, I knew where I was going. I know she was going to go to college and I know I'm going to prison and it just wasn't going to work. She can't bring me with her. I can't bring her with me. So I broke up with her, always regretted it, always had that thought like, man, what if I wasn't such a fucking loser? And we were, to, and we stayed together. Like how would my life have turned out? And uh, six months before I got out of prison, I sent her a letter. You know, back then it wasn't, I guess there might've been the internet in 1994, 93, I don't know. But uh, I still remembered her house address and I wrote her a letter and uh, just told her how things turned out. Like, yeah, here I am in prison. No surprise. She wrote me back and, said she thought she saw my picture, a drawing that looked like me on a wanted poster several years back. Figured it was probably me, but didn't know for sure. And then her life was going really well and don't write her anymore. So I decided I'm going to write her one more letter and tell her everything that I've always wanted to tell her and didn't have the balls to tell her. Just to kind of clear my plate, like my, you know, my conscience. I didn't want her to think that I broke up with her because I thought she was cheating on me which is what I, the bullshit I told her years earlier. I wanted her to know that the truth was that because I knew where I was going, I knew I was a fucking loser and I'm going to go to jail. And I'm probably going to die a young, violent death. And that was just what my, I thought was my destiny back then. And uh, get a little emotional talking about it. So about two weeks later, I got an, I got a letter back from her and she says, well, you know, on second thought, I guess we can, you know, be pen pals. And then, you know, a few months later, she came up to see me and I made parole. And uh, 
and then I got out like a month or two after I made parole. Like they don't tell you what day you're getting out. They say, okay, you made parole. And then one day you wake up, they're like, you know, Owens, pack it up. You know, and then it's like, okay, I'm going home. Like, but you don't know till, you know, that day. And when you make parole, you don't tell anybody because there's people in there that want to fuck it up. There's people in there that don't want to see you go home because they're stuck there. So they want to, you know, they're like the claws, the crabs in the bucket, just trying to pull the other crabs down. You know, they want to see you fail because they're failing. And so you just keep your mouth shut when you make parole. Somebody fucks it up. Uh, Because if something happens, like you get a ticket, you know, they find something in your cell that's not supposed to be in there. You get in a fight or something like that, then you're not going home. So you just keep your mouth shut. So I get home and, uh, and her and I, you know, start hanging out and, you know, eventually we, uh, we got married like two years later. (laughs) We're still married. That's beautiful today. So anyway, so that's the, so the thing, you know, I know that's a long story and there's actually, I skipped over a lot of the details, but the the most important part of the story was when I read that book, it changed Mm -hmm. the way I felt about myself. And once I had confidence in myself that I'd never had, that changed everything. I mean, like I became, you know, just a completely different person and it was all based on how I felt about myself. I'll shut up for a few minutes. So, <laughs> no, that's, well, that's, great, that's beautiful. And uh, I, I know your wife and she's a beautiful woman. And, and uh, it's, it's really great. Uh, kind of gets me a little teary too, <laughs> just hearing the story, Mark. Um, what, uh, so, so you're out now, right? Yeah, you, <laughs> I've been out since 1994. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I've been out a little while. Well, just when you got out, you were 30 years old at the time? I was... Uh, Man, I don't know, 29, I think. I got out in June of okay. June 6th of 94. So I guess I was 29. Yeah. I locked up for like four years and nine months. Yeah. And so and the feds ran their sentence with my state stuff. Like I got 10 years in Baltimore City, 10 in Baltimore County, 10 in Hartford County, five in Carroll County, 57 months with the feds, and a two to four year <laughs> sentence in Pennsylvania that all ran concurrent. Yeah. So, uh, you know what you got out what what did you do next like how did you start to build uh besides getting married congrats again and that and um what what do you what would you start to do to you know for, get your life together once you were outside yeah so um there's a couple of things that happened before i got out of jail where you know i was already like putting things in place to ensure my own version of success maybe a year before i got out of jail I'd managed to save up some money. Like your family can send you like money in jail okay. and then you spend it to buy like, you know, coffee or, you know, little Debbie's or whatever. Well, I'd managed to save up like $500. And I wrote my grandmother and told her I want to open a bank account and I needed her help. So there was a local bank, Provident Bank in the Baltimore area. And I mailed her like the money order for 500 bucks. And she went and opened up a bank account for me. Then what I did a couple months later is I contacted the bank and said, hey, I want to borrow $500 from you as a personal loan. And I want it to be a secured loan. Like you can hang on to the money that I have in my savings account as collateral. So they agreed. So I'm I'm sitting in jail and borrowed $500 from a bank. And then every month I'm sending them a money order for like 12 bucks or 15 bucks or whatever to pay it back. And uh, so I was actually establishing credit while I'm locked up. And then when I got out, I actually went and like paid the rest of the loan off. Uh, also, another thing that I did was when I was on minimum security, like the last few months, we would drive around on this, like, I was like a, like a, 
truck driver's helper. Like, you know, I'm driving this with his truck driver. We would go to like these different places to like drop off furniture at state office buildings and things like that. I think they paid me like three bucks a day for that. And one of the places we went was this uh, factory in South Baltimore. It's actually down in Curtis Bay where they put chrome plating on these metal pieces that became parts of like furniture. And I'd been there a couple of times and I, I saw the owner and I said, listen, man, you know, I'm going to be coming home in a, in a few weeks. I'm going to need a job. I mean, I'm like, you know, I'm in jail, but I am going to be looking for a job. Would you consider, you know, if you need any help, like, would you hire me? And he said, man, come see me when you get out. So the day after I got out of jail, I went and saw him and he hired me and I was making six bucks an hour working at a factory. Then, and I got out in June and I had been applying to go to UMBC, which is uh university of Maryland, Baltimore County. And, you know, filling out that whole application process, like it was very transparent. Like I had decided like the new mark, like I'm not lying. I'm going to tell you the truth about everything. And, uh, and so, you know, I said, look, I'm, you know, a felon, you know, multiple felonies and, you know, all this shit. And they approved me to be a student. And, uh, and this is the funny thing, like this always cracks people up. People say, well, what'd you major in? I was majoring in biochemistry. And, uh, and so I went to UMBC as a biochem major and ended up getting a job as a lab technician in a company. And this is where like things change. Like the, as a lab technician, I wasn't making a lot of money. Like I was just doing very basic stuff, but I was like, I mean, like the day that I put on my lab coat for the first time was like one of the most exciting days of my life. Cause when I, even when I was like, you know, 10 years old, like I had a little chemistry set and I just like, I was fascinated with chemistry and biology and geology and, you know, all that stuff. Uh, so something that happened that was a life-changing event was the, and I'm an employee at the time and the boss comes in, there's like 30 employees. And he said, and uh, he says, all right, everybody, uh, let's, let's go into break room. And there had been a lot of rumors that either the company wasn't doing good and they were going to get a business or they're going to start laying people off and all that stuff. And uh, so we're all thinking like, Oh shit, here it comes. And we go in the break room and the guy's like, Hey, listen, we, I know there's a lot of rumors, you know, we're going to get a business, there's going to be layoffs, but I can assure you, like, we're going to ride this out together. We're, you know, we're going to be fine. So get back to work and kick ass like a pep talk. And then he came in Friday and laid off a third of us. So like two days later and I got laid off right after that's how people get killed, man. I mean, it's like you tell somebody on Wednesday, their job's good. And then they got and put a contract in to buy a house or buy a car. And then two days later, you lay them off. Like that's when you hear about these people going into workplaces and like shooting a place up, like that's the shit that happens that just snap. And I wasn't like that, but I mean, I could see, I could understand how that could happen to somebody else. And uh, of course I was devastated. And then I decided, you know, I got another job as a, tech or a temp working at another lab and uh i can't remember what happened to that one i think i got laid off there but they laid off everybody then i got a job working at uh another lab and i'd started there and it was making decent money and it was a great experience and like three weeks before christmas they laid off like 130 employees and all of the temps except for me and i was like the only one that that made it through. And I think that was partly because I was figuring out this networking skill, like constantly going and talking to the boss's boss and telling him how much I appreciate the job and I'm learning so much. And, you know, and just, you know, just creating that, I guess, that like goodwill. 
And uh, so I made it through all the cuts and I'm sitting there and I'm watching guys that have been working there for 25 years, packing up their little box with their shit and walking out to the parking lot. And I'm like, still here. And I felt like really kind of shitty about that, but like, but I need to, you know, feed my family too. So it's like, I'm not going to just like quit and walk out with you. So I just, I stayed there, but I started to understand that this, uh, the sciences, there's really not a lot of jobs or money in the sciences, despite what I'd been told my entire life. You know, at the time, this was like around 1998. I started to thumb through the, back then, this, there was no Craigslist or nothing. Like the Sunday newspaper had like an employment section that was like 30 pages long. And five, there would be like three lab jobs for 10 companies. And there would be like five or six pages for computer companies. And I'm just kind of looking at the computer jobs and I'm like, man, like one year experience, $90,000. The fuck? Like, I know these people, they're not that smart. You know, like they come in here and fix our printers and <laughs> shit like that. They're not that smart that they're not smarter than I am. Like I should do this. Fuck the science stuff. There's no money. There's no jobs. Uh, I see guys with PhDs from MIT getting laid off. They got to move to California to find a job. And just like, it was just like fucked up. And uh, so I switched gears and started doing the computer stuff. And a friend told me, that was in the business. He said, don't waste your money getting a college degree in computer science. You won't even know how to hook up a printer. He said, you want to get these computer certifications from like Microsoft or CompTIA for A plus and Net plus and stuff like that. So I took his advice because he was in the business and uh, ended up getting a job working on a help desk at Lake Mason. Uh, quit my lab job, started working there. And then what happened was uh, I was there for six months and I was a temp and then they wanted to offer me a full-time job. And I, you know, I go to the boss's office and she's like, Mark, I'm pleased to announce it. Like Mason wants to make you a permanent employee. Hmm. And I told her, I said, Myrna, listen, uh, there's something I got to tell you. It's, you know, I'm like, I've got some felonies and I don't know if that's going to affect my employment or not. And she said, Oh, and I explained to her some of what happened and she called HR and then I could see her tears. Like she wasn't in tears, but I could see her eyes like starting to like fill up. And she, she looked at me and she, and she hung up the phone and she said, I am so sorry. And within like 15, 20 seconds, security was coming into her office to escort me to my desk to get my, you know, like mm. my pen or, you know, the few things I had on my desk. And then, you know, to the elevator, down 25 flights and out, they actually walked me out to the sidewalk. <laughs> and, uh, wow. and I'm just like, I'm sitting there looking up, you know, <laughs> at the 25th floor thinking like, man, half hour ago, I had a great job, a great view of the harbor. And <laughs> we were in the gutter, like, what the fuck? <laughs> and, uh, and I had been, you know, like I would lived an entire life of like, you know, fucking myself over. So I'm like used to picking myself up and like, you know, and fixing it. So I'd like, I, so I had the same attitude. It's like, got laid off from the lab job and something else better came up. Just got kicked out of his fucking office building. Something better is going to come up. And within a week I had a better job. Uh, so Mark, what, what led you to, uh, towards just being self, an entrepreneur, self-employed, getting into real estate? Cause well, that's, that's an interesting yeah. thing because the, back when I was a kid, like, you know, if it snowed, that was like money falling out of the sky. I'd be out shoveling walks, knocking on doors. Yeah. I, there was lawns that I cut, like anything. If somebody went, wanted me to run up the store to get them a loaf of bread and they gave me a nickel, like, sure, man, I'll do it. Uh, yeah. But I, I never really, at that age, 
realized like how far I could go. I just thought like, I'm just trying to make extra money to buy like cigarettes or whatever. And uh, even at, you know, like the age of 12. And when I was into the computer stuff and I started making decent money, I started saving a bunch of money. And then it's like, well, where do you invest it? And I started doing the stock market thing and then quickly realized that that's like, you know, it's like a casino. The only people that are, you know, making the money are the insiders or the sales guys that are just get paid every time you buy and sell. Uh, and so I got this bright idea to start buying rental properties. And I think that's when it really started to, to hit me because when I first started buying rentals, it wasn't to create like a massive portfolio. It was just to create an, uh, you know, enough income where if I got hit by a car or something that like we had enough money coming in to pay the bills. My wife wasn't working. We had a son. She didn't work for like five years. She went back to school. And so we were depending on me for the income. And I was making uh, around the year 2000, like 130, 150 or somewhere in that range. And uh, I'd only been out of jail like six years. And I was like really making like really good money. And yeah. uh, and so I just started buying rentals. And then uh, eventually I realized like, man, like if I buy enough rentals, I can I can like get out of this rat race that I'm in. Yeah. And that's, I just kept doing it. And that's what I did. How many doors did you get up to Mark? Uh, when I, I started selling most of my stuff a couple of years ago, I was up to about 110. Yeah. 105. All single family. Now they had some apartment buildings that were, okay. uh, the biggest apartment building I have was 18 apartments and nine garages. I had a 14 unit with three garages. I had a 13 unit. What else? 15 unit that I still have. Uh, a seven unit, a three unit, a few two units, and maybe 30 houses, something like that. Well, Mark, we're, we're probably going to have to have you back on the show because, oh, uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, you uh, up to here already, it is just so much gold in, into, I mean, we were hooked in the story. I was totally hooked. And, uh, yeah, and there's so same. much gold into how the mindset shift and all that, that I think our listeners are going to get a lot from. Um, but we are getting to that point in the show where we like to talk, you know, have some rapid fire questions sure. and, uh, and we're going to have to have you back on because we want to know what you do up to now as well. So, so Mark, we'd like to start off rapid fire with, uh, you know, what, what is one good hack that you have in your life? Yeah, what, my, my first thought is my wife. <laughs> she's the best hack that I have Yeah, because she's the one that keeps track of everything. But, uh, just for me personally, I use, uh, man. If it's if it comes to apps, I use a thing called To Do, okay. which is it used to be called Wonderlist, and now it's just oh, yeah. Microsoft bought it and it's called To Do, and I use that to keep track of all the shit that I have to do, you know, like everything. And uh, so, and that, you don't have to use that, but you should have some kind of list. Whether I don't care if it's a Word document or whatever, because if you spend all your day trying to remember all the shit that you have to do then you're not going to be able to be creative and think of other things that you want to do. But if yeah. you can get all that shit on, on an app or on paper, then you don't have to keep trying to remember it. And that frees your mind up to think about other things that you want to do with your life, whether it's get your health straight or work on your relationships or work on your relationship with your creator or whatever it is. Yeah. Right. Uh, it just, it frees up your, your mind to, to work on things that are more important than just trying to remember, Oh, I got to go to the dry cleaners. Yeah. I love that tip. I find that helpful as well. Um, next question. What What is a favorite? Could be a band, a movie, a book. Man, there's a lot. Uh, if I had to say one, not because it was my favorite, but because it was the most important, it would have to be that book you can if you think you can, because right. that okay. changed my life more than anything else. 
if it wasn't for that, if you know, the next one would probably be Rich Dad Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. So what? obviously the name itself, you, you can if you think you can. That in and of itself probably tells you a lot about the book. But other than yep. that, was there one key takeaway that you took from it that you could share briefly? Yeah, you know what? Yeah, the, the key takeaway was that uh, up until that time, this is see, this is why I don't go to AA or NA or any of that stuff because like my beliefs are a 180 from them. So I don't like I don't do any of that stuff. But for them, their philosophy is like, you know, if you do something great, your higher power gets the credit. And if you fuck up, it's your fault. And I'm a 180. I'm like, if I fuck up, I didn't ask for this DNA. I didn't ask for these genes. That's my higher creator. That's my higher power's fault. He's the one that gave me this shit. I'm the one that's stuck with it. And mm-hmm. if I'm going to defeat that and live a good life, I'm taking credit. I'm going to pat myself on the back. I'm the one that did it. And so that that change for me wouldn't suggest it for everybody, but that's it. What it's what worked for me. I, it gave me a, a confidence that I'd never had in my life. And and once I knew I could do it. Nothing held me back from anything. I have confidence today that I never had. Even on my bad days, it's like blows anything from my past away. You know, uh, I hate to dig deeper into this, but I have to. Oh, now, I could see that being the case, but I'm, I'm curious now that you know, you know, you're just so much more enlightened and everything. Would you still say when th- at this point, when things go bad, when bad things happen, it's still the higher power or would you take responsibility for that yourself? I, I accept, you know, a friend recently said uh, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond to it. I accept 100% of responsibility for how I respond to anything in my life. So That's if I get, you know, whatever happens, you know, it's like, I mean, things happen that are beyond our control. You get hit by a car, you get, I don't know, you get cancer, somebody that you love dies. But how are you going to respond to it? Are you going to rise to the occasion and support your family and be a, and be the rock that holds them together? Or are you going to go out and get high and drink and fuck everything up? You know, and those are choices that we all make every day. And I yeah. choose to do what's in, in my and my family's best interest. So, Mark, tell us a little bit about one tip that you would go back in time and tell your 25-year-old self. I've had other people ask me similar questions in the past. And it is such a difficult question to ask. People always have this, you know, like some snarky little answer, but uh, I don't have any snarky little answers because it's really an important question. If I could get back to myself when I was 25 years old, at the time I was sitting in jail, it wouldn't necessarily be advice, but I would tell myself, like, just keep, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Your life's going to turn out more amazing than you could possibly imagine. I promise you, just keep doing what you're doing. And that would be what I would tell myself because that's, that's the case. I mean, they even say that in AA and NA, like when you get sober, your life would be better than your wildest dreams. I can confirm that, that, that is true. I never imagined ever that my life would be where it is today. What do you think holds people back from being happy? You know, that's a, that's a very good question. I think that it's how people define happiness. You know, if you think that like happy is more money, it's not going to make you any happier. You know, you, you're going to hit a point where it's like, okay, now if you feel like a, like you're ugly and all of a sudden you got $10 million, you're still going to feel like you're ugly. Now you're just an ugly guy that's got $10 million, but you still feel like you're ugly. <laughs> so it's like, so the way you feel about yourself, the, the money doesn't change that. It makes your life more comfortable. 
but it doesn't, it's the happiness. It's like when we go buy a new pair of shoes or a new car, we feel happy. But then eventually within a couple of weeks or a few days or a few months, we're back to where we were before we ever bought the damn thing. Money's the same way. You know, you hit the lottery, you win $10 million, you're ecstatic. Oh shit, look at all this money I won. A year later, you're not going to be any happier than you were before you bought the money. You might have a little bit less stress because now you can afford to like, you know, pay for your kids' private school or something like that. But, uh, but happiness and stress are two different things as well. So for me, my definition of happiness, it's funny because I just responded to a question about this recently, like how do I define success? And my definition of success is when you were happy with what you have. That's it. Mm-hmm. If you're not happy, you're not successful. But if you're making 10 bucks an hour working at Burger King and you're happy to me, you're successful, you know, because the the whole goal is to be, you know, happy. Mark, before we wrap up, can you, can you, I'm sure there's a lot of people who are going to get a lot from this and they'd want to maybe reach out. And I know you want to help people uh, help, you know, get their lives together and everything. So what, how can they reach out to you? How can people? Easiest way is just my email, mark at markowens.com. Perfect. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, I don't want to put my cell phone number out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't do that. So, uh, Mark, we, um, we're we going to have to have you back on because this is only part one of your story. And I think uh, part two is just as good, if not better. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you for inspiring a lot of people, you know, who are going to get, you know, have very successful lives with, you know, what, uh, through knowing that it can be done from seeing somebody else who's done it. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity. Both of you, Adam, Louie, take care. We hope you've enjoyed The Wayfinder Show. If you got value from this episode, please take a few seconds to leave us a five-star rating and review. This will allow us to help more people find their way to live more authentic and exciting lives. We'll catch you on the next episode.